So 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I want to begin reading in verse 1. If you're physically able, I would encourage you, if you would, to stand as we read the Word of God together and we think about how we are to use what God has given us for His glory, how we can be generous for the glory of God. This is what the Word of God has to say. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their, and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, See that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that, you, so that by his poverty might become by his poverty might become rich and in this manner I give my judgment this benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work but also to desire to do it so now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have for if your readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person uh, has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased at your bur and you burden, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that, they may, uh, be, uh, that there may be fairness. As it is written... Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. We, this church is a, a Southern Baptist church. Now, if you're not familiar with what it means to be Southern Baptist, it means a lot of things, but, but one of the primary things it means is that we, we gather together with other Baptist churches um, and support mission a, uh, efforts through what we call the cooperative program. The cooperative program is a giving uh, opportunity where all Southern Baptist churches give to the cooperative program, or we often call it the CP. And then that money, which is quite significant when you gather up the big and the little gifts from all across the, the nation of, of Southern Baptist, big and small, that, that money then is used to fund primarily the International Mission Board and then second to that, the, um, the North American Mission Board, and then significantly less than that, other things like, uh, like seminary. When I went to seminary, I paid a third of the cost of my education because you and other Southern Baptists paid for the, uh, the other uh, two-thirds of that through cooperative program 
giving. But there's a history behind that that I think is helpful in, this, in the context of this passage. Prior to 1925, when the cooperative program was established, Southern Baptists did not have any uh, unified giving um, uh, opportunities. Now, we had things like the Sunday School Board, and we were sending missionaries, but, but that was done. But the missionary board sent, but, but those missionaries had to come back and, and solicit funds from the churches, and so it wasn't very effective. In 1919, the Southern Baptist Convention decided we needed to, we needed to fund our, our agencies better. And so they launched into what they called the 75 million campaign. And the desire was, was to raise $75 million, which you can imagine in 1919, that's a whole lot of money. They wanted to raise $75 million from Southern Baptist churches to fund um, the agencies of the Southern Baptist Convention. So International Mission Board, actually in those days it was called the Far Mission Board and the Home Mission Board and the Sunday School Board and the like. Well, things started out pretty well. Um, pledges were made from churches all across the nation and the, the pledge amount was significantly more than $75 million. And the leadership of the convention was quite excited. But some things began to happen. Uh, one of them was we had some economic trouble in the nation and that that reduced the ability of churches to, to give what they had pledged. But the, the thing that I think most tanked the success of the 75 million campaign was in desperation toward the end of that campaign, the leadership decided instead of relying on the generosity of the churches, they would then, they would assess to each church what they owed. And so leadership sent out assessment letters to each Southern Baptist church and said, this is how much money you owe in order for us to make the $75 million campaign. Now, maybe you're new to Southern Baptist life, but I'm just going to tell you in Southern Baptist life, you don't tell any church what to do. We're funny about that. And so that went horribly wrong. Uh, the original pledges were somewhere around $90 million. The hope for the campaign was $75 million. In the end, they only brought in about $58 million. And for various reasons, it was a financial disaster for the convention. I mean, a financial disaster. It took a decade or more for us really to, to recover, not only financially from that, but also from a leadership standpoint of gaining the trust of churches. That was in 1919. Uh, it ended in, in 1924. And 1925 is when we came back with the cooperative program. And the very heartbeat behind the cooperative program is those gifts are gifts that are given out of the generosity of the churches that determine only by the church. Now, every year when our church gathers for budgetary meetings, I, from the very beginning of my ministry here, I have encouraged us to give more. I've given us, encouraged us to, to increase our percentage of giving. And by your generosity, you have. Year by year, we've been able to increase our generosity. But, but nobody, there's no dictate from Nashville that tells us how much we must give. We as a church decide to do that every year. And I, I hope you understand what I'm saying is, is that our gifts to the cooperative program and beyond that are Lottie Moon uh, and our Annie Armstrong uh, mission offerings. Those are gifts we give singularly out of our own desire for generosity. Paul in chapter eight of second Corinthians is writing to the church and 
These were difficult days, not financially, not for the Corinthians, but they were difficult days for the church back in Palestine. So the Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem. A famine had caused an economic depression and resources were scarce. People were starving to death. And Jewish Christians were in a uniquely difficult position. So in the, amongst the Jewish community, there would have been some help for those who were, found themselves in financial difficulty. But because the Jewish Christians were followers of Jesus, they were cut off from any help from the synagogues and the temple. And because they were Jewish, they were cut off from any help from Roman government. And so Jewish Christians uniquely were in a very, very hard situation financially. When Paul hears of their troubles, he confidently asks the new believers and the new Gentile believers in places like the Corinthian church uh, to, to give generously to meet the needs of the Christians back in Judea and, and Judah and, and in Jerusalem specifically. And Paul had already received uh, the, the Corinthian church's pledge. They had already said, this is what we're planning to give. That's why in this passage, he talks about finishing the work that you had begun. The work had begun when they had made pledges to him of how much they were planning uh, to give. And so now he wants them to fulfill their pledge. He encourages the church not only to excel in the good things of faith, and he, he, he names them in this passage. He talks about their, they've excelled in faith and in speech and in knowledge and in earnestness, but he says, I also want you to excel in grace. Paul wanted the church to give generously to the, Corinth, to the, to the Christians in Jerusalem, but he wanted also for the, the, for the Corinthians to give in a way that honored the Lord and testified to the gospel that they had received. Now, let's just be honest. As your pastor, I want you to give generously to the work of God's kingdom. And I want you to be a, a generous giver as a, as, a, as a discipline and as an act of grace ongoing in your life. When you give to Central, your, your gift not only supports this ministry here, but like I've already mentioned, we give a, a portion of your gifts uh, to things going beyond the work here in Waycross. And so every, every dollar that we received as a, as a gift and as an offering to this church goes uh, to the International Mission Board and to the North American Mission Board. And, and uh, you are supporting the work of missionaries literally around the globe. Many churches do not enjoy the wealth that God has provided for us here. And I think as a result of the wealth that we've received and have um, the, the gift of, God's given us the opportunity to be generous to other believers around the world. So like the Corinthian church, I want to encourage us to excel in grace. Here are the three things I want us to see out of the passage about generosity, about finances, and about um, excelling in grace. Number one, it is a response of love. It is a response of love. Number two, it is a recognition of provision that God has provided for us. And then third, it is a relinquishment of ownership. Understanding that what we have is not ours. What we have is really a gift of the Lord. We are stewards of what God has given us. But let's begin with the response of love. I really see that in the first nine verses of this chapter where, where, where Paul is calling the, the Corinthian church to give. But notice he begins with a testimony of another church. And so he begins with a testimony of the churches in Macedonia, which 
apparently were significantly more impoverished and afflicted than the, than the Christians and the church uh, uh, where the Corinthians were. And, and just a couple of things about a response of love. Paul very clearly says, what I'm asking you to do is not a command. I want you to hear something very clearly before we go any further. If you walked into this church today and you have said recently, all they want is my money, then hear me very carefully. As pastor of this church, I'm asking you, do not give a penny to the work of God here at Central. You hear me? Because if your attitude or your thought about the work of God and, and, and what God is doing here is that we are only focused on getting your financial things so that we can prosper financially, personally, you have missed the point. And that is a hindrance to you hearing and understanding and receiving the gospel. So for your own spiritual well-being, for your own eternity's sake, keep your money to yourself. And that's why Paul begins, as he's encouraging the Corinthian church, boldly telling them, listen, you need to be faithful to what you've already promised to do. He begins by saying, now listen, hear me carefully. This is not a command. Uh, he, he says to them, he says to them uh, in verse 16, um, uh, accordingly, we urge Titus that as he started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all things and all your love, see that you excel also in this act of what? Act of grace. Not out of obedience or compulsion. Paul had first instructed the Corinthians how to give in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 where he said now concerning the collection for the saints as I directed the churches of, of Galatia so as also uh, as you also are to do on the first day of every week each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no col um, collecting when I come and when I arrive I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to the Jerusalem, to Jerusalem. So it already given sort of some practical advice. I want you to be gathering this offering week by week so as not to be a burden and really not to be beyond your means when I come and so that the offering will be ready when I come. He then went to Macedonia and planned to return to Corinth to collect the offering before going back to Jerusalem. Now, I think it's appropriate and right to say that Paul had the authority to command the Corinthians to give. I think he could have said as their elder, as their founding pastor, I, I command you to give. God's given you abundantly and graciously and, and, uh, and, and, and you should and must give. But, but he makes clear that the offering is to be a free will offering and not out of obedience to his command. In verse 8, he makes this clear by saying, I say this not as a command. So in other words, you can choose to do this or not. This is not an issue of obeying my commands. Now listen to me on this. Faithfulness and giving is not about obedience as much as it is about an issue of your heart. It's not as much about an issue of obedience. I, that's why I say if you came here today and you've got some weird view about what we want from you, it would be better for you to keep your money because I'm not commanding you to give. What I'm calling you to do is understand that when God transforms your heart, giving is a response to that. But, it's, but, but, but get your heart right before you get your wallet right. Now, this is not to say that giving has nothing to do with obedience. 
However, you can be legalistically complying with giving and not excelling in grace. Uh, the, the Pharisees in, in the days of Jesus, they tithed on everything. Jesus pointed out they tithed even down to the, the spices that they gave. And yet their hearts were far, far, far from God. You can be legalistically correct. You can be absolutely precise in your giving and, not, and yet not excelling in grace. Paul very much desired the Corinthian church to be very generous but he also desired that they do so not out of compulsion. He wanted them to do so out of joy. Thus, to understand what it means to excel in grace, you must first understand that this is not a command. Excelling in grace is a response to grace. Now, excelling in grace is a response to grace. So, so notice, in verses 1 through 5, Paul gives testimony to the generosity of the Macedonians who, he says, gave out of, in, in affliction, so they were experiencing difficulties, and in extreme poverty. Now, that was in contrast to the Corinthians who were most likely very wealthy because of their position, because of the trade, because of the economic dynamics of their community. And Paul says that the, the, the Macedonians gave out of joy. He says in verse 3, they, they gave according to their means, and then he said, and beyond their means. And then he said they, in verse 4 that they begged for the favor of giving. Look at what he says. He says, according to their means, verse 3, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. In other words, he didn't command that. In verse 4, begging us earnestly for the favor. In other words, they saw the act of giving as something that was good, blessing, and, and wonderful for them, well beyond the gift that they actually gave. Paul explains what motivates this heart of generosity in verse 9. When he talks about that, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Your response of grace is a testimony to you knowing God's grace. Do you see that connection? Your response to grace your giving of grace and your excelling in grace is a response to knowing the grace of God. Listen to me carefully in this statement. There is no amount of generosity that you could ever give that would compare to the generosity and grace you have received through Jesus. Put a number on that. How, how much is your eternity in heaven worth? How, much, how, how precious is it that God orchestrated according to his providence to send someone into your life to speak the gospel? How valuable is it to you that by his grace he opened your eyes to see the truth? He drew your heart unto the gospel to receive it. Now, see, if you're thinking of generosity as something you're doing for someone, you've misunderstood the biblical understanding. Paul says, listen, God's already done it for you. 
the amount of grace, those of you who know Jesus, who've been covered by the blood of Jesus, those of you who've received the grace of God, what you've already received is so overwhelming. There's nothing you'll ever give that will compare to that. And so that's why we say that excelling in grace is a response to the grace we've already received from God. Jesus gave his life for sinners like you and me that we might be saved. And when you know this grace, it compels you to excel in grace toward others. It's a response of love. Number two, excelling in grace is a recognition of provision. Now in verses 10, 11, 12, and 13, Paul gets down to the sort of the specifics of um, what's happening in Jerusalem and in uh, the Corinthian church. He says in verse, in verse 10, he says, and in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burden, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that, at their, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. Now, what is Paul talking about when he talks about fairness? Well, first of all, I think he's talking about that God provides for your needs. Verses 10 through 13, Paul gives some practical instructions. And so he encourages the church to finish what they started and promised to do. Verse 11. In verse 12, Paul connects their ability to give with their means and then indicates that their abundance should, be, should, should bless Jerusalem while Jerusalem's abundance should bless them. Now, here's the equation that Paul's working through. The Corinthians have more worldly wealth, money, than the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. But the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem have more in the way of the gospel than the Christians in Corinth. You see, it was the, it was the Christians in Jerusalem who first believed on Jesus. They're the ones who heard the gospel first. And it was the Christians in Jerusalem who were the first to send out missionaries to proclaim the gospel throughout the world. And the Corinthians were the recipients of the witness of the gospel from the Christians in Jerusalem. So Paul's equation is this, that the wealth of the gospel is flowing out of Jerusalem. And it is right and good for the wealth, the, the earthly temporal wealth that is, in, that is, that is in, in Corinth to flow back to those who are in Jerusalem that the Corinthian Christians have received such great blessings from, from the wealth of the gospel. That's a little confusing, but do you see that, that flowing back into? While the Corinthians have an abundance of worldly wealth, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem have wealth in spiritual things. This is the point. The point is that Paul is making that God provides for your needs. Friends, your greatest need cannot be purchased by the wealth of this world. 
You hear me? What you really need cannot be bought at Walmart or Saks Fifth Avenue. Our greatest need is to hear the gospel of Jesus and to receive his gift of grace. Everything else, everything else is passing away, will be burned up, will not pass through the judgment. Your greatest need is to hear the gospel and to receive the gospel, the gospel of grace. God had graciously and generously provided for the Christians in Corinth by bringing the witness of the gospel to them through the Christians in Jerusalem. So Paul's basically saying, Corinthians, your greatest gift of wealth is not the things that you own, it's the gift that you receive from the from Jerusalem church by hearing the gospel and receiving it. God had abundantly provided for their needs to hear the gospel. And so he's saying, now, dear brothers, God's provided for you wealth. Give back to the brothers and sisters there in Jerusalem because God has provided for their needs through you. You see, God provides, I believe, for your needs and he provides for your generosity. Paul clearly sees that God is providing for the physical needs of the Jerusalem church through the wealth of the Corinthian church. In verse 14, he says that their abundance in worldly things should supply the needs of the Jerusalem church. The point that Paul is making is that God has provided for the Corinthians so that they could provide for the, for the Christians in Jerusalem. Now, you and I tend to think about wealth only in terms of personal advancement. So if you grow in wealth, we tend to think that growing in personal wealth means bigger, better, nicer houses, nicer cars or trucks, more leisure time, more toys, whatever that means for you, uh, more spending on personal pleasure and, and things like that. But Paul wants the Corinthians to see that their wealth is part of God's provision, not only for them, but for the whole church. Friends, that's what I want you to think about when we, when we talk about excelling in grace. God has given us great wealth, not just so that we could expand the things that we own, but that we could expand our generosity for the kingdom of God. You must ask the question, how does God want you to use his provisions? Does he want you to support greater ministry in Waycross? Does he want you to support greater missions in North America? Does he want you to support greater missions internationally? I've mentioned already, this church is a Southern Baptist church. This means that, that we partner with other Southern Baptist churches to support missionaries around the globe. I, I looked it up recently. We currently have about it's about to change because we're about to commission more, but 3,548 missionaries around the world. Each of them are dependent upon yours, mine, and every other Southern Baptist generosity in giving so that they can take the gospel around the globe. Friends, has God not provided abundantly for you and for me that we might provide for the witness of the gospel and for churches in other parts of the world out of our abundance? One last thing, I want to set you free. Relinquish, relinquish ownership. In verse 14 and 15, 
Paul says, your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your need. That there may be fairness. And then he gives an Old Testament reference to give support to what he's teaching. And he quotes Exodus 16 where, in verse 15 where he says, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. Now two things here. Number one, possess what the Lord owns well. When we think of money, we naturally get possessive. We talk about my money, my things. We feel dependent upon our possessions. We work hard to get them and keep them and maintain them. And, and listen, from a biblical point of view, it is certainly right to understand that you have agency over what you possess. God has given you freedom to possess things. You have agency over what you possess and can do with it as you please. And so that's why Paul doesn't command this. He's not saying, listen, everything you have, uh, you have to think about is, is sort of in a, maybe in the, in the modern parlance is like a communist or a commune. That's not what he's teaching here. You possess it. It's your gift to give. The testimony of Scripture is not of God forcing you to surrender against your will, uh, 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 your will, what you possess, but, 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 but possessing what you have and giving it to his service freely. So I said before, excelling in grace is a matter of the heart. And the core heart issue is how do you understand who owns what you have? If you are the owner of all that you have, then you have sole authority and dominion over what you keep, what you give away, what you do with it, and what you don't do with it. However, if you are the keeper or manager of another's property, then you desire to possess and use the property as the owner would desire. Now, here's the tension here. On one side, God does not demand it of you. It is yours to possess. On the other side, a biblical worldview understands that everything you have is the Lord's. And I don't mean just your money. I mean everything, your intellect your physical strength, your abilities, your gifts, they are the Lord's. Our Puggles, back when we had Awana, their first memory line was, God made everything. I think you could push that even further and say, God owns everything. And in his sovereignty and in his possession, and in his divinity, God has allowed you to possess many things. But we must learn to possess what the Lord owns well. And we must learn to use his resources for his glory. And then secondly to that, understanding that God in his abundance provides for our obedience. Now this I hope this un helps you understand generosity in a way that maybe you've not thought about it before. The last verse of our passage is a reference to Exodus 16, verse 18. And what, what he's referencing there is the instructions that God gave about manna. Now, here's the context. 
The Hebrews were slaves in Egypt, and by God's amazing power, he, he delivered them out of the, uh, the slavery in Egypt. And in the intervening period between leaving Egypt and before they possessed the land that God gave them, God provided for every need that they had while they were in the wilderness. And part of the way God provided was through manna. Manna was like bread. In fact, in the New Testament, Jesus uh, connects himself to manna saying, I am the bread of life. But manna in the Old Testament was bread that, that, that the people of God were instructed. They were to get up every morning and to collect the manna. But there were some particulars about it. They were not to keep it overnight. So they had to collect it every day except for uh, the day before the Sabbath. And um, it, it would rot if they tried to keep an extra day. But, but in, in Exodus chapter 16, verse 18, it tells us that some people collected a lot. You know those people, they get out and they're like overachievers, right? So they're gonna go and they're just gonna massively collect a lot of manna. And there were others that collected little. But, but the point in both is that it says that some gathered much, some gathered little, um, uh, but, but uh, whoever, some gathered much and had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. In other words, whatever they gathered, God had provided for them, this is the key word, enough. God had provided for them enough. Manna was how God fed the Jewish people when they left the enslavement of Egypt. And the Bible tells us that they were together um, only what they needed for the day and that God provided the manna and it was always enough. The people participated in collecting it. The people were blessed to receive the gracious bread from heaven, but the people could not store it up or, 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 um, or try to hoard it for multiple days. Here's the point. When God provides for you, listen to me, God always provides enough. Enough to meet your needs. Enough to satisfy. His provision is always enough. And one of the things I think has been very dysfunctional in the North American church's experience of wealth is that our understanding and definition of enough often is perverted. So what we think is enough is bigger than what we have now. What we think is enough is more than we have now. I don't know of another period of history that would have understood the phenomenon of rental storage units. But in our world, rental storage units are a must because we don't think we have enough. But I want to press this idea of enough a little bit further. As God provides for you and me, he has provided for his work and his will directly through provisions of wealth. Oftentimes, God also provides for his work and his will through the generosity of other saints. And so to understand that, I think you must understand that God has provided enough for you, not only for your needs, but also for your generosity. 
God's provided for your generosity. We tend to think about generosity as something that we give sacrificially. But in all honesty, God has provided for you to be generous and abundant and to excel in grace. I've often enjoyed reading biographies of D.L. Moody. Moody was, a, in the 1800s, an American evangelist. You may not be familiar with his ministry specifically, but you're probably vaguely, at least vaguely, uh, a familiar of Moody Bible Institute and Moody Broadcasting, Moody Publishing. All of those things flowed out of uh, the work of D.L. Moody. He's fascinating to me on a couple of ways. Number one, just because he was able to, to build such a uh, pretty fascinating ministry, but also just his humble beginnings intellectually and academically and financially, and, and even his own struggles with managing finances and those sort of things. He is remembered rightly so as one of America's great evangelists of the 1800s. Uh, he left behind institutes and education, educational institutes and and, and a church and, and many things that, that remain to this day. And he used, God used him greatly, but, but the story of D.L. Moody and all that Moody left really cannot be told without telling the story of those who God used to provide for Moody and his ministry. There's a man by the name of John Farwell. Uh, John Farwell met Moody in a young men's Bible class at work. When he moved to Chicago, he, um, he began his career as a bookkeeper. He would eventually become successful in the dry goods business and uh, would eventually become the head of the largest wholesale dry goods firm in the country. From the moment Moody uh, gave up business to do ministry, uh, Farwell supported him. From providing him a home rent-free to designing and building the Chicago Tabernacle for Moody's revivals, uh, he would be a lifelong supporter of Moody. Farwell uh, uh, was said to be the inventor of D.L. Moody. And to this, he, his reply was, I didn't create, create Moody, God did. But God certainly used Farwell behind the scenes out of his generosity that God had provided to build and to support the work that God was doing through D.L. Moody. The other person is Cyrus McCormick. McCormick invented a mechanical grain reaper and in one year he sold over 1,500 machines and by age 40 he had become a captain of industry and very, very wealthy. Moody, early in his ministry, was involved in the YMCA, and he wanted to build a YMCA that was a larger building than the Crosby Opera House. And he went to McCormick and asked him to help him raise the money. McCormick invested the first $10,000 to do that. That was huge money in its day. And because of that $10,000 gift, the, the other gifts came quickly, and Moody was able to build the building. And days before it was to be completed, it burned down. And even as the building was still smoking, McCormick showed up again, gave another $10,000 and began the process of rebuilding. God used D.L. Moody in, in massive ways. We remember him today because of what God did through him, but God used the generosity of others to support the work and the ministry 
of D.L. Moody. The, the point is that God used D.L. Moody to do, do great things, but he was not alone in the work. There's no doubt that God has blessed you and I with much worldly wealth. Now you may not think that, but the fact that you came here today in a vehicle, you're more wealthy than most Christians around the globe. The fact that you expected to sit in an air-conditioned building, you're more wealthy than most people around the globe. And, and the examples just go further and further. If you have more than one pair of shoes, you're wealthy. Friends, if you have more than one vehicle, you're grossly wealthy. We are a very wealthy church that live in a very wealthy world, uh, uh, country, and we have enjoyed the great abundance of God's wealth over us. There's no doubt that God's blessed us with much worldly wealth. How, can, how we use it to testify to what is our true, how we use it testifies to what is our true treasure. The things of this world or the hope of the kingdom and the gospel of God. It is good and right to excel in faith. It is good and right to excel in the knowledge of scripture and spiritual maturity, but let us excel in grace, giving abundantly and generosity as the Lord has provided for us. Let us give generously and abundantly for the gift of God's, for the work of God's kingdom, both locally and literally around the world. Oh, dear brothers and sisters, excel in grace. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening, and until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the Kingdom.